I'm Guy Watson, and I'm the founder of Riverford Organic Vegetables. So how has, uh, so we've had a few weeks of very extreme weather over the last little while. How, mm. have you, how has that manifested at Riverford? How have you okay. noticed that? Well, it has rained pretty relentlessly since early December, so ten weeks of uh, rain, which seems to have come to an end now. And actually, we've been very lucky in that it's happened at the dormant time of year where we've finished harvesting roots. And we would be planting a few things by now and preparing ground for planting in an ideal year. Um, but, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be able to start doing something next week and it won't, it'll make very little difference having, you know, a delay of a month in planting actually sometimes means absolutely nothing, you know, sometimes when it comes to harvest, because the growing conditions in those month, that month can be so variable. Actually, what you plant in late March can come earlier than what you plant in late February. So so we've been very lucky, but I suppose in the, I mean, you know, we've got livestock outside. We overwinter some livestock on some pretty light draining land, and that's all been poached up, but meaning that it's kind of the grass has been turned to, to mud. But actually, that's... It doesn't, you know, their ground was, was ground that we were going to plough the grass up this spring anyway, and it won't have damaged the soil significantly because it's it's quite resilient sort of ground. So, you know, I think actually we've been quite lucky in its effect. And I can see on neighbours, certain people who sowed autumn cereals late, um, you know, they just haven't grown, the ground's been waterlogged and there's been a fair amount of soil erosion and it's a pretty sad sight. Um, I think our ground has stood up. I mean, I'm quite encouraged actually walking around. I mean, over the last five years, I suppose, we've adopted a more and more extensive rotation, by which I mean there's more grass and less cultivation, which has meant that the soil, the structure of the ground is better. There are probably more earthworms, there'll be more organic matter. The ground is more open, meaning that the moist water can enter the soil and percolate through it faster. Um, so you get less runoff, um, better drainage, more air in, air in the soil. And actually, where we haven't driven over it with a tractor, I mean, sometimes you have to drive into fields to get vegetables out, but where we haven't driven over it with a tractor or poached up with livestock, it's actually in pretty good, it's in a pretty good state. I mean, and, um, and I think we'll drain and recover quite quickly. And our winter crops, yeah, we've had to go in there and harvest leeks and cauliflowers and so on, you know, which, you know, you have to get them out of the field with a tractor. And that has made a mess, but it's, you know, fairly small areas. And the crops actually have been, been okay. So it's been miserable for our staff, but actually we've been okay. That's probably much more than you needed. <laughs> One of the most striking images of the, of the recent floods was the picture mm. of the UK from space where you could mm. see the sort of brown stain all around the south, these sort of plumes of soil being washed out. Washed out, mm. I mean, is there, is, is there something that, you know, from organic perspective, yeah. talking about that being, that, that being reduced? Um, well, I think organic farming probably is more, um, or is, is probably less likely to result in um, soil loss, you know, when we do get these extreme weather events. And the reason for that is that I think the soil is in better structure and more open, so you get more percolation and less runoff. And that's why I think if you go to the Environment Agency, that's what they would be wanting to encourage farmers, farming practice that leads to those sorts of things. 
And it is, I mean, I can look around at neighbours' ground where it's just been in intensive cereals, and um, you, you can see the runoff is appalling. I mean, it just doesn't, the water doesn't, it just does not soak into the ground. And, and I, I think the adoption of, um, of autumn sown cereals rather than spring sown cereals, there's certain, I think, some of the cultivation techniques they're using now, people using power harrows rather than tr- traditional harrows, you know, where you can plough and plant cereals in borderline conditions. And but probably damaging the soil quite a lot, and I can st- I think I think I can see the effect of that. Um, so I mean, I suppose good agricultural practice would be, I think, to bring sowing dates forward, so that you, you know you're sure that you've got a good ground cover before winter mm-hmm. sets in. So in, you know, people are still sowing, you know, well into November. Um, I seem to remember we did have a good run of had a sort of dampish autumn and then it dried up in uh, late October, November and I think that's when probably most of the cereals were sown this year and it was too late for a lot of them. So the, so the move to, um, yeah, I think organic practice, you know, by virtue of having better soil structure is, is likely to result in less erosion. And, you know, you, don't, you get virtually no erosion of grass fields. And, um, you know, we tend to have a lot more grass in our in our rotation. Of course, you know, one might argue that that's not going to feed a population that's hungry for grain and hungry for animals that eat grain, you know, chickens and pigs, and increasingly dairy cows, cows now, actually, as well. Um, but, I mean, I suppose one might argue that we shouldn't be eating so many of those, um, those you know, those uh, foods... I don't know whether this is relevant to your article, but I mean, I feel very strongly that um, it would take more than a shift to organic agriculture to solve the looming problems that we have. You know, I think we need to look very carefully at uh, the balance of most of our food crops are our annual crops. Wheat, barley, if you look Mm. around the world, wheat, barley, maize, rice... um, to cool. some extent, yeah. So they're 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 um, you know they're annual annual crops which require you know intensive cultivation, which means inevitably means damage to the soil. Um, some cultivations are worse than others, and you can grow with less cultivation. But annual crops are bad for the soil. There's absolutely no yeah. question about it. If you have any sensitivity to you know if you go and look at you know, a, gra- a permanent grass field and you look through it and you see it's absolutely teeming with life and earthworms and, and you know, invertebrates and, and, you know, it will have, you know, ten times the population of earthworms, if not a hundred, mm. and that's probably reflected in all the other soil species as, as well. And you then compare that to somewhere which has grown, you know, intensive cereals. And there's land in the southwest which has grown, you know, it's probably been in barley and wheat virtually continually for 30 years. And you, you'll struggle to find an earthworm. Mm. You know, the, the soil is pretty in a pretty desperate state of very low organic matter. So it's bad for the soil. And then the exposure to the soil, to the... You know, anyway, but how can we feed ourselves when we're mm. so dependent on that? We need to feed you know, more perennial crops. We need to develop uh, perennial grain crops. And I just don't... You know, I've seen no, you know, um, this is a bit of a bugbear of mine, but I mean, the, um, you know, wheat, barley, maize, I don't know about rice, but they're all derived from, originally, their progenitors, you know, would have, would have been perennial plants. I mean, they're all graminaceae, well, I'm not sure that maize is, but maize definitely comes from a perennial um, ancestry. Uh, but, you know, we bred them to be annuals and to put 
you know, produce big seeds and which are easily harvested, which all ripen at the same time, which is you know, great for farmers and great for seed companies because we go back to the seed companies and buy the seed every year. Mm. I mean, what we need is something is a you know is a, a, a grain crop that you can you can harvest and. Mm. And then uh, let it recover and without cultivation and go back and harvest it again the next year, which is what, you know, if we were harvesting grass seed, well, when you are harvesting grass seed, that's what you do. I yeah. mean, it, um, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem beyond, I mean, I'm sure if a fraction of the money that's gone into developing GM crops had gone into perennializing some of our major crops, you know, we would have perennial crops now. And, and it would have, you know, we'd have just a, you know, you wouldn't involve... You'd, you'd be sequestering carbon in the soil because you wouldn't be cultivating it. You wouldn't be using energy to cultivate, you know, fossil fuels to cultivate the soil. You know, we wouldn't have the runoff problems. I mean, the benefits would be just huge, and I'm sure it'd be much better for wildlife. And I think even potentially it could be more productive, you know, because if you think that the soil is, you know, if you look at it in this country from, um, you know, July, August, September... October, so a third of the year, the first part of it was quite high, and, and actually even into October and November, and November and December, though, but there's no ground cover, so getting on for half the year, the ground is not photosynthesizing, you're not producing anything. If you could have a crop that was photosynthesizing all year, um, I thought there was a potential for it to be a lot more productive, but of course, you know, there's no incentive in our current you know, capitalist system, uh, neoliberal capitalist system, there's no incentive for anyone to develop a perennial seed for anything because you only, you'd only sell it once. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't know, I suppose I would like to see some, maybe Bill Gates could do it. <laughs> <laughs> Put some money into, that you know, didn't really, not looking for a return, into perennializing some of those yeah. crops. And I, I believe that there is some work going on I mean, in the West States. Wes Jackson's been doing stuff in oh, the States. 18 Nervos, yeah. right, yeah. Okay, but that's my current bugbear. And it's quite interesting in Uganda where I've just been. I mean, they are, you know, their main starch source is, is bananas, which is a perennial crop. Mm. You know, it just keeps coming back over and over again. And you see them growing in a mixed, quite often mixed up with other fruit crops, you know. Mangoes, papayas, jackfruits, all fairly major food sources, and they tend to be grown in a mixture with the bananas, sometimes with coffee underneath, all perennials. You know, it's a very, very sort of healthy system. Very, you can get very few pest problems because it is all mixed up. Um, and how have you, at Riverford, over the last sort of 10 years or something, <coughs> as there's that pattern of, of extreme weather and change, more changing mm. weather has become more pronounced. I mean, one of the, from outside mm. of Riverford, one of the things that you notice is mm. the number of polytunnels that you have mm. has increased mm. exponentially. Mm. I mean, how else have you had to sort of adapt? Okay, well, I suppose the overall sort of policy is one to mitigate and avoid risk. Um, and one way that we've done that is to put up polytunnels, um, which have been very, very successfully um, financially and in terms of our customers' You know, they really like the products that come out. And I suppose it means we have to import less, but I mean, it means we can have, you know, interesting salads throughout the year. And the other, another thing is shrinking from the, you know, whereas I suppose I spent 15 years pushing the, into the, the, what we call the shoulders of the season. So, you know, it's easy to produce a lettuce from the end of May to mid-September um, with you know, use of fleeces and early planting, you can be producing them the first week in May and you can, can carry on producing them. 
into November, actually even up to Christmas, by using different varieties and going into growing escaroles and radicchios and whatever. But we're just retreating from all that. You know, it's just because those are the ones that tend to fail more often. I mean, the... Um, so... Uh, and indeed, all the growers that we work with are doing the same. And all the... the um, I'm just trying to think of some crop or strawberries. We're not growing strawberries at all anymore. I mean, it, it's just... Pro- um, quite, uh, because I, I used to be very dogmatic that I wanted to grow my strawberries outside. It was unjustifiable for polytunnels to grow a crop, which you know, historically had been grown perfectly successfully outside. And I suppose I did... You know, I carried on for 10 years being dogmatic about it, or probably 15 years, and consistently losing money, letting our customers down, frustrating them, saying they were going to get strawberries this week, and then it rained and we couldn't pick them, and then we just had to pick them all off because they had botrytis by then, throw them away and hope that they'd be better. You know, it was just, it just, we were losing money and we were pissing our customers off. And, and in the end, my farm manager, who was under, last year we lost not 2013, the cropping year 2012, uh, we lost half a million pounds growing vegetables, uh, which I would, have, I would have thought was hardly possible. <laughs> I mean, it was an absolutely staggering sum of money. Well, that, was uh, two, that was the summer of 2012. 2012, 2013, you know, going the into the autumn, year. winter. Oh, yeah, it was absolutely diabolical. I mean, everything, I think we lost, you know, we lost all the strawberries, we lost a lot of the onions, we lost a lot of lettuce, um, you know, all the early crops failed, you know, spinach, you know, it was just, it did get a little bit better towards the end of the season, but, um, you know, and then I think the winter was pretty ghastly as well, I mean, it was, it was, you know, and, and that has really made us, you know, we just can't afford to lose that amount of money, so, so, yeah, we've, we've, um, cropageddon, they called it. <laughs> Uh, they'd um, we just so we just sort of redu- you know drew back from anything that carried risk so strawberries have gone um, and you know and quite a few other crops. So is there any way as a as a farm business that, that, that one can that one can build in resilience to us to something like that? <laughs> well, you're not going to like what I say. I mean, so polytunnels. You know, just just growing what comfort, grows comfortably this time, and and importing actually. You know, the um, you know I, I suppose I've got I'm not sure. economically and possibly environmentally. I mean, I would like to have some research done on this. You know, is it better to grow something in the south of France and get a you know a full yield fairly reliably? Um, and possibly use lower inputs because it's uh, wherever you're trying to grow a crop outside its climatically suitable range, you inevitably involve using higher inputs. You know, for a conventional farmer, that would be pesticides to try and fight off disease because crops that aren't comfortable are vulnerable to disease. You know, for us, it might be using ground covers or spending more on weed control. Or the biggest risk is, at the, is is just not getting the yield at the end, either having a crop failure or having a reduced crop or having reduced quality. And, you know, I, I, I suspect <laughs> there are quite a few instances where it would be well, certainly economically better and quite conceivably environmentally better just to grow 200 miles further south or 500 miles further south 
and I would be quite it'd be quite interesting to do a kind of carbon footprinting exercise on that. Um, and uh, perhaps we need an environmental studies student to do that for us. Um, you know, because cultivating land is a um, environmentally expensive. It does involve well, everything that goes with cultivation is actually bad for the environment. The en- energy used in doing it, the the um, CO two that's given as an out as a result of cultivating the land, and if you you know squared you know, did the equation with what it costs to import it, I don't know. I mean, I just it would be uh, it would be an interesting. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, one might argue that people should eat just what grows in season. Well, I saw you were, you were in that local food uh, roots film that came out, and you said the main thing we need to do towards a local economy is learn to love eating cabbage. Yeah, yeah, well, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> and I have been at it for almost 30 years now, and we do, you know, I would... Well, I was having an argument with one of the managers yesterday about the virtues of kale compared to spinach, you know, we can be producing, you know, even even going in now into um, March and April. I said, why can't we grow some thousand head kale? I think it tastes pretty nice and just have it there for when, at this time of year, when we're short, we were desperately short greens this year because it was so warm earlier in the winter, everything came forward. And now, you know, we have very little actually left. We're even using Spanish cabbage, which is embarrassing. But, and a lot of Spanish spinach. You can't grow spinach in this country at this time of year. Um, and uh, but people on the whole would much rather eat spinach than cabbage I mean, it takes a lot of persuasion <laughs> personally I would rather eat cabbage and kale well I'd rather eat kale most of the time than spinach but um, uh, that does require quite a lot of cajoling I mean Geetie's pub in London is absolutely um, hardline UK only produce and mostly very local to London and they produce bloody good food consistently, mm. but it does require quite a skilled chef mm. um, and quite a committed team to do that. And uh, so it is about skills quite largely. I, I, you know, I think we could eat a 90, you know, maybe even 95% UK diet without any loss of, any significant loss of um, utility in the kitchen, I think an economist might call it, but, you know, we could still eat bloody well and have varied good food, mm. um, you know, with a 90 or 95%. But that, to do that does require quite a lot of skill and mm. commitment. And, uh, you know, I can say after 30 years of, of trying to persuade people to eat seasonally, and um, uh, there's only, you can only go so far. I mean, we, you know, if we just, if we put out boxes, you know, with just cauliflowers, cabbage, you know, onions, swedes, potatoes, parsnips... You know, throughout the winter, especially especially when you get into February, March, April, when mm. people get the first whiff of sort of spring, they go, they certainly go off those vegetables. You know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be in business today. Mm. Yeah. And what's your sense of the, the you know that idea of, of living with climate change in terms of how it's sort of affecting the, bringing that added degree of uncertainty into our lives? And even on the archers yesterday, they were saying something about you just never know what's coming next. And, um, yeah, what do you mean psychologically? Well, I think it was a bit to... like, you know, I can only go, but if I go back to 2012-13, you know, when it got to be, 
I can't remember when the weather changed, but it, it uh, you know, you were going into sort of February, March, and, you know, those of us, you know, we've all lived, there's a sort of expectation that, you know, spring is going to arrive and the sun's going to come out and the birds are going to start singing. You know, just like if you're lying in bed and you wake up before dawn, there's an expectation that, you know, dawn will arrive. And, but I, you know, you sort of, I, I started losing confidence that that would ever happen. You know, that this could be, we could live in, uh, you know, psychologically, I start, we could live in greyness forever and all the things that we've, you know, relied upon. I mean, it's just so much part of our culture, the seasons. And, and uh, um, yeah, I suppose there was, you know, a good deal of sort of anxiety and, yes, depression that went on with that. And I guess we've had, you know, similar this winter, though it hasn't gone on, but anything like as long. You know, we've had 10 weeks at what is normally a pretty bleak time of year anyway. Um, uh, so I don't think it's been anything like as bad um, but yeah you know I think it's, it is psychologically pretty disturbing and, and, we, and then the, the, you know I suppose all you know agriculture you know farming is part of, of culture I mean all our agriculture is based on an assumption of weather patterns I mean that's what it's all based around I mean my whole experience of growing vegetables I used to sort of you know log planting dates and harvesting dates and, and record temperatures and so on and, and I had a whole a whole sort of spreadsheet developed <laughs> on the assumed you know days to harvest and 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 the day in June was worth you know 14 days in December and I worked out various things and whatever but it's all just completely gone out of the window I mean when you know trying to trying to uh, plan things has become very very difficult and it has you know we have it, it is it has made it, yeah, it's made it bloody difficult to run a sensible business and it has made it particularly difficult to um, to source locally, actually. I mean, we, you know, we if we agree with a farmer that we're going to, he's going to plant that crop and we're going to sell it, we have to sell it. <coughs> and everything is very carefully planned that it will be sold in those weeks. And then when it comes earlier or later or doesn't come at all, uh, that become you know it does throw our plans into total disarray as I mentioned earlier you know all the greens it was a very very mild autumn this year I mean prior to it starting raining in in um, early December it was actually a fantastic autumn I mean it was you know we had plenty of sunshine it was warm you know all the crops you know romped away and, and came very early actually uh, and that caused so we had an absolute deluge of green crops uh, through the early winter, and now we've got virtually none. So that that's been quite difficult to cope with. Yeah. So if you look forward to like ten or fifteen, twenty years, mm. what's your sense of, of of where you'll be as a business, where farming will need to be? Mm. Mm. Well, I think one thing I would be very very surprised if um, fossil fuels weren't a downside more expensive than that, I mean, possibly quadruple the price. And it would take something like that sort of increase in price to uh, uh, radically change transport patterns. I mean, you know, were they to double in price, I think you'd see air freighting of food drop out fairly quickly. Mm. You'd see heating of greenhouses drop out fairly quickly, neither of which we do anyway because they're a complete insanity. And I think probably if you then go up to something like four times, you would then you know, even you know, trucking vegetables or even shipping, you know, would start becoming, possibly would start becoming prohibitively expensive. And at that point, you will, you know, see, I think, 
I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I have become rather cynical. I'm afraid of people's patterns. <laughs> Most people are pretty damn selfish, and what they eat and how they behave is largely dictated by their own selfish... Um, Oh, maybe they just feel powerless, but I don't know. You know, people will, you know, when things become more expensive, people consume less of them. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, so if we want people to consume environmentally less damaging food and support their local economies, we want imported food on the whole to be more expensive. Mm. And greenhouse, you know, hothouse grown food to be more more expensive. And, and so, yeah, an increase in fuel price would be, I think, what will bring that about. And I see very little... And very little doubt that that's going to happen. Owen I mean, Patterson, the Environment Secretary, recently said something about you know we've uh, we're very good at adapting. We've always adapted. There's this sense that one that, that with climate change we mm. can just adapt. To what extent can mm. farming adapt? I mean, you can't move your whole farm. I mean, it's basically it sounds like what you're saying is actually you know you can't pick river for that and move it. Yeah. Actually, you can shift some of your operations. Yeah. I mean, to what extent? But well, you, we will. You're, we you're will. a bigger operation. You're a you're more. Mm. Active, I mean, for, for, for your for yourself and smaller farms, mm. to what extent can farming adapt? Um, uh, is it still running? It's still running. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I do think you know. I, I to some degree, I absolutely loathe you know, and Patson with a, a passion. But, um, you know, he does have a point. I mean, I do think capitalism and, um, is, does unleash a kind of creativity that planned economies just absolutely cannot access. Uh, you know, I'm very reluctant to admit to that, but it does seem to be true. So people will adapt, and they will adapt surprisingly quickly. I mean, they will find different ways of doing things. Um, But there is a whole sort of infrastructure which I think will take quite a lot of uh, time to change, and and, uh, and I, I, what relying on just a sort of capitalist Adam Smith kind of model of uh, to you know a laissez-faire market-based approach to, to to agriculture is that it, you know so many of the costs of agriculture are actually externalised. I mean, you mentioned the wash up, the runoff, and the flooding. I mean, a good, you know, the flooding that we've experienced, I mean, I'm, I'm sure a good part of it could have been avoided with different agricultural practice. Mm. Um, you know, if you go and look at a grass field compared to, uh, you know, a field of permanent pasture this winter, there would have been virtually no runoff. Mm. And any runoff there would would have been, had virtually no soil in it. And you compare that to a field of uh, late sown barley, you know, sown in early November. And, you know, it's the field of barley that's caused the flooding. I mean, most runoff, OK, a bit of it's come off roads and so on, building, but most of it's come off land. That's where it's come from. And, uh, yeah, so there is, a, there is the effect of growing those, those crops has, um, you know, uh, has an impact down the line which farmers aren't paying for. And you might say those who are growing, uh, you know, the grasses aren't being rewarded for. Um, so that's the problem with just leaving out, you know, the Owen Patterson approach. And, uh, you know, I think you could apply the same to wildlife, landscape, pollution of water. You know, the, um, you know they're all, none of, you know, there is no reward for the, um, 
the value of good agricultural practice and virtually no penalty, well under Owen Patterson's regime. I mean, they had talked about there being penalties, people not getting single farm payments if they didn't follow good agricultural practice, but I think that's been largely abandoned under his uh, regime. Yeah, so um, uh, that's the problem with leaving things to the uh, open market. Um, and certain things like perennializing crops, you know, do require, will require a government or an NGO to, to take a lead on, because you're not going to get that from the free market. Yeah. Uh, and I do see that as being a very, very important part of... Um, I mean, what I would like to do, I, mean, I think the simple thing, if you want to change, I've sort of argued this for 20 years, if you really want to nudge people in the right direction, you know, you know just put a bloody great tax on fossil fuels. You know, forget about all your carbon trading and everything, which has just been totally ineffective. Were we to just... But, I mean, it's just politically unacceptable, mm. isn't it? I mean, every government that's tried to do that you know, has even even backed down from the relatively modest attempts to... Mm. You know, what that would do is it would you know, nudge you towards a state that we're going to have to get to anyway, I think, and, and pro- probably, you know, develop technologies... Um, which would be, which we would possibly be leading in, you know, technologies which are going to be needed in five or ten years' time. Mm. I don't know, the oil price is kind of stabilised, and it's just over a hundred dollars a barrel, yeah, something like that. Um, but uh, you know, with I would, I would be very surprised if, if the world economy picked up a little bit if that didn't shoot up to one hundred and fifty fairly quickly. Or if Russia turns the taps off. (coughs) Well, that'll be interesting, won't it?